Welcome to the Project Fitness Podcast for fitness professionals and fitness enthusiasts who want to be better at life. Fitness is the greatest investment of anyone's life. However, it's not easily obtained, and anyone who says different is just plain wrong. Join award-winning personal trainer and strength conditioning coach Chris Fudge every Monday as he explores all aspects of fitness that can lead you to your optimal health. This podcast is brought to you by the Ready State Virtual Mobility Coach. Dr. Sturette is a movement and mobility coach for players in the NFL, MLB, NHL, and NBA, plus a doctor of physical therapy. Kelly has created a program called Virtual Mobility Coach. Every day, Virtual Mobility Coach gives you guided mobility videos. It walks you step-by-step through Kelly's proven techniques to relieve pain, improve range of motion, and improve performance. Try it completely free for two weeks, and if you decide to continue, you can get 10% off for life using the promo code PROJECT10. Welcome to another episode of the Project Fitness Podcast. Today, I'm sitting down with Dr. Mitchell Yoss. Dr. Mitchell Yoss is the creator of the Yoss Method, which is used to resolve pain in over 15,000 people before surgery, after surgery, and he is the last line of defense, which ends up being somewhat the, the first line of defense if met earlier. Dr. Yoss has written three books, uh, The Yoss Method for Pain-Free Movement, The Pain Cure Rx, Overpower Pain. You had a TV show for three years on PBS uh, called The Pain Prescription. So Dr. Yoss, you are the pain man, essentially, and you have a method to remove or reduce pain in people that you say no one else really is aware of. Correct. Thanks for having me, Chris. I think this is a great platform. I think I'm going to be speaking to people who are anxious to understand this, they're already into the idea of muscle being an important, critical part of how we live every day. And so when they begin to get the connection that muscle actually is the primary cause of pain, I think they're really going to enjoy this and see it can help them in their lives. So um, if we just kind of very briefly look at the concept we're looking at today, 130 million Americans suffering from chronic pain, roughly 1 billion people. Okay, so you have to say to yourself, why is this happening? And the only real answer is that there's something systemic going on. Something isn't right in the way pain is being addressed in the acute phase, which is why it's leading to a chronic phase. So that really leads you to the understanding that the primary way people are diagnosed is through the MRI or x-ray. I think everyone acknowledges that. Yeah, pain, you go, you get an MRI or an x-ray, it finds a structural variation. Most people have heard of herniated discs, meniscal tears, Uh, stenosis, arthritis, and the assertion is since the structural variation that was found is found at the time of the pain, it is asserted to be the cause of the pain. So what they're doing is they're attempting to make a correlative concept. This is here when this is here, therefore this is the cause of this. This is also known as junk science. It's the lowest level of logic. This isn't a medical argument. This is a logic-based argument. You cannot use correlative theory to prove causation. Something is causing something. So to understand the concept, if I was to say opening, if, if, I, if I said I open my front door at the time the sun rises, correlative theory says that I can now say that it's a fact that opening my front door causes the sun to rise. With the power. And, and, and clearly insane. So Mm -hmm. if we go back to this concept, the person's having knee pain, they have around the kneecap, and they get an MRI, and it says that there's a meniscal tear there. Therefore, it's asserted that 
the meniscal tear is the cause. One important thing to understand is the study showed of those people who have knee pain, 63% were found to have a meniscal tear. Of the group of people who do not have knee pain, no knee pain at all, 60% are found to have meniscal tears. So what can you derive from that concept? Well, what it's basically saying is roughly 60% of the population, whether you're in pain or don't have pain, have meniscal tears. So is it possible that those people that do have pain are having pain due to a tissue that's adjacent to where the meniscal is eliciting the pain. And in fact, even with the pain, the meniscal tear is not causing pain. And so this is why we kind of ended up where we are. Regardless of whether the person's in pain or not pain, most people are going to be found to have structural variations. And the assertion it's the cause of pain simply because it's found at the time of pain is baseless, literally baseless. So I go to medical school. I'm now 30 years old. I decide this is my second career. I want to uh, be in the medical field, so I'm going to become a physical therapist. Within the first few weeks, I'm hearing this talk, and I was taught analytical thinking when I was a boy. I was taught how to analyze things, pure logic. My brain works like a computer. And so I'm starting to sense that there's something weird. I mean, that, that should raise an eyebrow when you hear well, you want me to get tell my, my patient to get surgery for their knee pain because they have a meniscal tear at the time, but you just told me 60% of people, roughly the same amount, have the meniscal tear with no pain. That That's concerning. I, I don't think I could go along with that. And then finally, you get to the end of your training, and now you're going to actually be treating people. So you're going to treat people. Now this person's standing in front of you. No longer is this a game. You're in a classroom. Now this person's standing in front of you, and they're saying, make my pain go away. I can't live like this anymore. So being who I was, and I apparently it separates me from everybody else, I thought the most obvious question would be, can you just point to where your pain is? Mm -hmm. And the person would say, oh, it's right around my kneecap. Well, once you understand this thing, it'll become very clear why this doesn't work with the meniscus. The knee is comprised of two joints. It's comprised of the joint between the thigh bone and lower leg bone. Then there's a second joint, the joint between the kneecap and the thigh bone. Well, the meniscus lies between the thigh bone and lower leg bone. So if it was to elicit pain, it would have to elicit pain at the joint between the thigh bone and lower leg bone, known as the joint line. You would have to press at the joint line. The kneecap attaching or running through the thigh bone is a completely separate joint. So it's literally physically impossible for a meniscal tear to cause pain around the kneecap. It's like saying I have arthritis at my elbow and it's causing pain at my ankle. It, it doesn't work. It just mm -hmm. doesn't work. So as I started finding out all these people had these symptoms where they shouldn't be, I said I can't accept the education I was given. I need to go on a different path. And that was to begin to interpret symptoms. And what I found, and here's the mind-blowing shocking wake-up call story in more than 98% of cases, the cause of pain is muscular. So you're saying that um, there, there might be something like underdeveloped, overdeveloped, but it's tissue that moves bones is causing issues, you know, between bones, example, like at the meniscus. You, so why you, so the first thing, and this gets really hard for people to accept, but you need to ignore the concept that you got an MRI. 
because that structural variation is in almost all cases, 98% of cases, completely independent mm -hmm. of whatever your symptom is. So um, people constantly email me and they say, oh, I have pain at my uh, L4, L5 nerve root. You, you can't say that. Someone told you that. But mm -hmm. the symptom will tell me with what the tissue is in distress. And what I am saying is that the cause of 98% of people's cases of, of symptom is due to some sort of weakness or imbalance of muscle, which is preventing them from, perform from performing their functional tasks without the muscle straining and eliciting the very symptoms being experienced. It's literally muscle that's responsible, independent of any structural variation identified. So is this usually found above or below the joint or, or above or below wherever the joint or the pain is associated? So uh, I think the good way to understand this is I have established that there are four mechanisms by which muscle can create pain. Mm -hmm. So I'll give you examples and then I think people will be able to understand. Let's go to the classic. I have pain in my upper trap region. Mm -hmm. Okay. So this is a muscle called the levator scapula. And for people that can follow the concept of Latin, that actually just means elevate the shoulder blade. It's named as the muscle that elevates the shoulder blade. Therefore, I would like people to say that although this area is perceived as part of the neck, it's really part of the shoulder complex. The levator scapula is connected to the shoulder blade and actually works to help keep the shoulder blade against the rib cage so that muscles of the shoulder joint can actually uh, pull off of their attachment from the shoulder blade and move the shoulder. Mm -hmm. So if this muscle were to strain for a guy like me, I would say, well, it's part of the shoulder complex. I need to evaluate other muscles of the shoulder complex to see if there's weakness in other of these muscles and therefore strengthen those to stop this excess load that has developed for the levator scapula to cause pain. So this leads to the idea that function occurs synergistically through muscles if certain muscles strain, it will cause other muscles to compensate, thereby causing those muscles to elicit pain. Okay. okay. So, so that's the first concept is that muscles can strain, cause other muscles to compensate, thereby eliciting pain at that muscle. The next one, let's go back to our kneecap concept. Pain around the kneecap. The primary area where most people have pain in the knee region is around the kneecap. The kneecap runs through the joint. It's, it's actually called a modified pivot joint because the kneecap, when your knee bent, is pointing forward. When you straighten your knee, it's pointing up. So it's moving. The position of that kneecap in the knee joint is controlled via the quad tendon by the quadricep muscle, the front thigh muscle. Now, let's say that you, you know, typical gym people, I'm not denying it. I think it's quite common. You go to the gym, you love to do leg press and knee extensions. Mm -hmm. Most people aren't fully adept or maybe don't recognize that they're not fully developing the hamstring posterior thigh muscle equally, and they cause an imbalance, and that quad ends up being stronger. It's going to have a tendency to shorten. Well, because of its attachment via the quad tendon to the kneecap, it's going to have an excessive upward pull on the kneecap. So when I go to bend my knee instead of that kneecap slightly gliding through it, it's compressed through it causing pain at the kneecap. So you could have pain at a joint caused by a muscle weakness or imbalance. The pain at the joint is independent of any finding of a structural variation. And there's testing to prove it. So that's two. Number three, here's one many people don't know, is that muscles can refer symptoms. Most people believe only nerves can refer symptoms. 
You know, muscles can refer symptoms because the indication of a heart attack is pain at the chest and the left arm. There's nothing wrong with your left arm. Mm -hmm. That symptom is being referred from the, the heart itself and the heart is a muscle. So I'll give you the classic one I like to talk about. The person who wakes up in the morning with numbness of the hand mm. and they're told it's coming from a cervical disc. That's, that's just not true. If you look at the area within the hand, you will see that that's the equivalent of a referred symptom from a muscle that makes up the rotator cuff called the infraspinatus. And when you were laying on your side because it was strained, your shoulder rolled forward too much instead of being maintained in its midline position in the shoulder. And so as a result of that, that muscle became overstretched, irritated, and began to refer the symptom in the hand. Hmm. So muscles can refer symptoms. Finally, muscles can impinge on nerves. The quintessential indication of that is sciatica. Sciatica has nothing to do with the lumbar spine. I, 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 I pray that everybody finally recognizes. The sciatic nerve does not attach to the lumbar spine. It actually begins in the gluteal region. It can be impinged by a muscle in the gluteal region called the piriformis. That muscle strains because another muscle in the hip region fails first, causing it to compensate and break down. So you could have a muscular cause creating a neurological symptom. Those four mechanisms account for 98% of the people having pain. I've established that over 28 years and thousands of cases. So when someone comes to you and they have pain in certain areas, do you do muscle testing? Is that your first go-to? So the first thing you want to, and again, the most obvious question, the first thing you want to do is say, where's the pain? Okay. Now, if, if, if the person had already had some sort of belief that it was muscular, you could go right into analyzing muscle. But again, you have to kind of understand the process by which the average person, and if there are trainers on here and they're working with people who are in pain, they know that this is the process. That person's going to come to them and say, I don't think I could work out. Or I'm going to have difficulty working out because, oh, I was told I have a torn rotator cuff or my, a labrum tear. I have a meniscal tear. Or I have a disc problem, right? So they've already entered the medical system. So the first thing you need to do is understand where the pain is. And then from there, try to determine, is there a structural deficit creating the symptom, which at which time they have to have surgery in the highest percentage of those cases. Mm -hmm. in, in my position, I'm telling you, it's less than 2% of all the people in the world suffering chronic pain. Once you establish it's not structural, and by the way, the recognition of a structural deficit is whether there is a loss of range of motion at the joint, severe, and at that end point, if it feels like you can push, try to push, but you can't because there's a bone hitting another bone, that's the recognition of a structural deficit, indicating that there's distress to the joint and therefore that identified structural variation may be the cause. But if you have full range of motion, then don't assume and don't accept that the structural variation identified is the cause. It's just independent. It's muscular. Then you go on to the process of looking at posture, movement, muscle testing, flexibility testing, palpation to establish which muscles may be um, knotted and creating pain. And then, then you begin the process of the rebuilding, strengthening. Through uh, testing, you said range of motion. Is it passive or active testing? So it's a, it's a, it's a general quick concept, really quickly. Someone is, uh, I love examples because I think people really hit home on this. So a lot of trainers are going to be treating and people out there are, are going to be trying to work their shoulders and they're going to go, they're going to have pain and they're going to be told, oh, you have um, uh, a um, frozen shoulder. Hmm. Oh, you have a frozen shoulder. You, 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 you can't do anything anymore. Okay, so frozen shoulder is really an indication that the, the premise of frozen shoulder is that there's a joint capsule 
It's called adhesive capsulitis. So there's a joint capsule that surrounds the joint. And as a result of some sort of mechanical or systemic deficit, you build adhesions on the capsule. The capsule has to be free to allow the arm bone to move in the shoulder joint properly, which means the head of the, of the arm bone must drop for the elbow to rise. This has to happen. This is called mm. inferior glide. So if the joint capsule is limited, then it can't. And so what happens is as the elbow rises, the head of the arm bone rises and it gets caught. So if we, the first thing you want to do is say to the person, raise your arm as far as you can. So they raise their arm to 90 degrees and they're like, that's it. I can't go any further. Now, it's very simple, very quick to understand. You say, just relax. I'm going to lay you down on the bed or a table or on the floor. I'm going to try to raise your arm and you're just going to relax. You just let me do it. If you raise that arm five, 10 degrees, even more than that, or straight up, you have just proven that it can't be structural. It can't be adhesive capitalized. That is a false diagnosis based mm -hmm. on the fact that if it was an adhesion, who gives a shit who's moving the joint? The fact is the joint can only go as far as this adhesive capsule will allow it. Mm -hmm. Once you passively approve it, it goes farther. It tells you that the person can't raise it because it's muscular, but given the chance to have it raised on its own passively, it works. You just proved adhesive capsulitis was a false diagnosis. So the person lacks the strength. So it's not a structural issue. It's a strength issue. So you would then step in and do what? So um, when we talk about a strength episode, I want people to understand what that's meaning isn't just strength in terms of the ability to perform an activity. I want them to understand, especially like something like the shoulder, it's strengthened the appropriate muscles that allows the proper mechanics of the arm bone in the shoulder joint to achieve its goal of getting this inferior glide to allow it to rise. So you need to understand that that's the problem. Here's another one. So maybe they're limited here, but maybe as they're raising their arm, you see this happen. Okay. And that's limiting them. What you notice there, that's different than the shoulder not working. That's the shoulder blade elevating. So what does that say? Well, we know that the muscles of the shoulder joint attached from the arm to the shoulder blade, that shoulder blade has to be locked in against the rib cage. If that's not there, then the muscles that move the shoulder joint can function. So if I see that happening, that's a red flag that a muscle called the lower trapezius muscle probably isn't working in the way it should. So I'll just, sorry, I'll, do, I'll just stop you. For anyone who's listening and not watching the video, Dr. Yoss is doing a shrug motion. So he's oh, shrugging. Sorry, yeah. Yeah, 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 not everyone's always watching the video. So it's a shrug motion where he's saying if someone shrugs to lift the arm instead of going into shoulder flexion, then you would say upper trapezius, or sorry, uh, low trapezius. Yes, needs yep. to be strengthened. Yes. Okay. So we're looking at all the possible elements of the mechanics of a joint, whether it's a knee joint, regardless of the joint. And so it's important to understand that, that we're not just talking about where are the functional limitations in doing the activities the person's doing. You really want to try to understand the mechanics of the joint, because if the joint isn't moving in the way it should, it kind of helps you to have the red flags as to which muscles because each muscle has a factor in how a joint moves as well mm -hmm. as how function is achieved. So they're real good insights into understanding which muscle. And then you, again, said just what you said, follow up with muscle testing to reaffirm it, palpate within the muscle to see if there's nodding, um, flexibility test, functional test. As I said, single leg stand and squat can help us to undetermine if there are hip weaknesses, things of that nature. Uh, movement patterns, how a person walks, if they don't walk the way they should, there's some sort of compensatory movement. 
that's going to be an indication of the particular muscle that's not functioning properly. So when you've identified there's a, a muscle not working, is there general guidelines that you utilize? Like everyone does three sets of 10 or you're like, okay, we do 50 reps multiple times a day. How do you go about strengthening a muscle that has been shown to be weak leading to cause of pain? Okay. So basically there are certain core principles we have to understand about strengthening. So we're recognizing that the force output of the muscle is less than the force requirement of the activity. That's why the muscle strength. So we know that we need to strengthen that muscle. So we have to understand, well, what do we need to strengthen a muscle? Well, basically, there's only one real way. And there's, there's kind of people talk about the three elements of fitness. There's intensity, um, frequency, and duration. Well, increasing the amount of times you do something doesn't develop strength. Increasing how often you do it doesn't develop strength. There's only one thing that develops strength, and that is the ability of the muscle to adapt to greater and greater resistances. So you're going to have to cause the muscle to adapt by causing it to respond to greater resistances. Now, the mechanism could be a resistance band. It can be um, machines. It could be free weights, whatever it is. I'm not too concerned about that. But you must be causing that muscle to adapt to greater, greater resistances. There's something called the perceived exertion scale, which is used to identify people often like to say, so what's the right resistance? Well, it's based on the perceived exertion scale, which is to say, we're going to measure how intensely you have to work to do that exercise with that set of resistance. And so it goes from zero to 10. Eight is where I would ask you if you were doing 10 repetitions. If you could do an 11 to 12, it would be a little hard. That would be a representation of eight. Five is a representation. If I said, could you do 15 or 16 reps, you'd say yes. So what we're noticing is eight represents 80% of your maximum effort. Five represents your 50% of your maximum effort. So we want to try to find a resistance level to start where we're at in eight. We mm -hmm. know that's the optimal place where growth can occur with the least chance of injury. Now you stay with that set resistance. Until the muscle adapts, we're causing micro tears, inflammatory response comes after. We build back muscle by putting proteins on the muscle. And at some point, it gets stronger. That same set of resistance is now going to eventually feel like a five, 50% of the maximum. Mm -hmm. You could do 15 or 16. At that point, then we're going to increase the resistance. And that's either moving farther away from the door, if that's how the band is secured, increasing the dumbbell. However you want to do it, and you're going to bring it back up to an exertion level of eight. Stay with that set resistance until it goes down to a five. Increase the resistance back up to an eight. Stay with that set of resistance and then go down to five. And that's the essence of progressive resistance. That is the basis of how we do this. When you say perceived exertion, so it's going to be the client. It's going to be the patient, how hard they feel it is. Exactly. You so, want to know something really cool about that? Yes. Is the fact that they've done studies on the use of for a person to determine how hard they're really working, they measure perceived exertion against the use of a heart monitor. And it was proven irrefutably that perceived exertion is actually much more accurate than the use of a heart monitor for the simple reason there's a multitude of things that could affect your heart rate. So how mm. much water you have, stress, you know, a, a lot of medications you're on, whereas perceived exertion is basically the person's perception. And it has been found to be very accurate. That's why I love it. And I've always used that. What if someone has a sensitization, let's say uh, mentally, they've had some form of injury and they're very fearful. So pain elicits or fear elicits pain and they're hypersensitive. And you do your testing and you're like, hey, this muscle's 
like actually not bad. And they're like, they do three reps and like that, that's a max for me, but you know, they can do more. Does that happen often? Okay. This is a really good, you're hitting on something that I think most people have to understand. And one reason why a lot of people are hesitant to do the YAS method. So the person has a problem walking up the stairs because they have this massive knee pain. They cannot wait there on that knee and they just cannot walk up the stairs. So I'm going to say, okay, so-and-so, we're going to do some exercises now and I want you to strengthen up and, and then we won't, you won't have the pain. And they say, what the hell are you talking about? I have pain going upstairs. Who in their right mind thinks I can strengthen a muscle without pain so I could go back and do that with, without pain as well? Well, here's the key. The reason you can't go up the stairs due to that knee pain is because the going upstairs requires groups of muscles to perform that activity. All activity, all activity is described and defined as using groups of muscles to perform the activity. Therefore, if there's a weakened muscle of six or seven, the other muscles are going to have to compensate if you're still going to try to achieve the goal. And eventually the force load on, or the force requirement of those other muscles trying to compensate is greater than what it was designed to. So they strain leading to pain. Mm -hmm. The YAS method style of strengthening is where the vast majority of the body is stabilized and, and the understanding that each muscle basically moves one joint in one direction. What does the quad do? Knee extension, one joint, one direction. Hamstring, one joint, one direction. Bicep, tricep. You, you, you know that if you're going to strengthen that muscle in isolation, you're moving one joint in one direction. So if I fully stabilize you, which is to say you're typically completely seated, except for the few exercises where you're standing. But generally, if you're seated, even to the point where you're not even sitting up, you're leaning back in the chair. Then what I have created is a situation where you have one joint moving one direction against resistance. Well, certainly from that one joint moving in one direction, I'm only using one muscle. And from the resistance that I can create for that person, I am sure by using the exertion level of eight to five, it's going to be in a level that it's not straining the person, thereby impeding any chance of the person having pain when they're doing exercise. Now, if they do have pain in doing the exercise, the highest probability is they're doing it wrong. Mm. They're integral, they're compensating another muscle in. Mm -hmm. So you have to be extremely accurate in how you do these exercises. And I'm very fortunate in that I've applied the laws of physics, kin kinematics, kinetics, all these things. I kind of took a high school physics course, and that's what I use to develop my own personal understanding of weightlifting. Um, so I understand how to, if you want to really create force with a muscle, you have to understand the ability to create that force is 100% directly correlated to the ability to stabilize the rest of the body on the other side. Mm -hmm. If that side isn't, a, isn't as stable as it could be, well, then how does the muscle pull off the side that's supposedly attached to the bone that's stable? Optimally, it mm -hmm. won't be able to. So you got to look at both sides, how you're creating the force and how you're stabilizing the opposing muscle. And by the way, everything you're describing, the fear, it's in everybody I treat, everybody, mm -hmm. especially if you've, had, if you've had chronic pain for a sustained period of time. So you really have to first explain like what I'm doing now and then show, I show them how I want them to do it on the, in my sessions. And then they do it with me supervising and they're impressed and overwhelmed to see, yeah, there wasn't any pain in doing the exercise. Okay. So, so what I'm understanding is your example was 
guy goes up and down the stairs, has knee pain when he goes up and down the stairs, <clears throat> comes in, you do the testing. You say, okay, it's going to be th- this muscle is weak. We're going to strengthen that muscle. They say, whoa, 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 going up and down stairs causes pain. You're like, we're going to do it sitting down. So you're going to create a safe environment and you're going to isolate the weak muscle to make it stronger. They then do it. They don't have pain while doing it. You can then have them get stronger in that position to go back to the stairs. Am I right to say all that? That's 100% correct. I mean, there's a person who I'll say, walk for me, and just walking is incredibly painful. Mm -hmm. I then go through the process of doing the three or four exercises I want them to do. Remember, they've just been doing the exercise. They haven't tried anything else. And then I say, okay, get up and go walk around now. Mm -hmm. And they don't have pain. And Mm -hmm. they're like, it's it's magic. It's, you know, (laughs) mystical. It's not. I always say the same thing to everybody. It's straight science. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned earlier about uh, sciatica and sciatica, yes. the sciatic nerve, and it's yes. always diagnosed. You got a lumbar disc, lumbar disc issue pressing on the nerve. And you're like, no, no, no. It runs underneath the piriformis muscle, or I believe in some cases it runs through the piriformis muscle. Yes. Um, so this is actually kind of a common thing that might happen with personal trainers. They yes. have a client who says they've been diagnosed with this yes. and they might say, let's just stretch it, stretch it, stretch it. Stretching makes it worse. And in some scenarios, they may try to do some contraction work or some glute work, but it's making it worse. Yes. If it is literally, that's the issue. It's a weak muscle. Would you give anyone any tips of how to contract the glute better where it's not pressing on the sciatic nerve? Yes. So if we understand the concept of what sciatica is, there's uh, the muscle on the side of the body. Actually, I know people, if they're not watching, I'm pointing to an illustration of the gluteus medius muscle, Mm -hmm. the muscle that sits right on the side of the pelvis. This is the muscle that makes us human. You couldn't be bipedal. You couldn't walk on two legs without a glute med. So what you want to understand is when the opposite leg is taken off the floor, the pelvis should drop to that side because you don't have two points of contact anymore. Mm -hmm. So the way you don't fall is that the attachment of the gluteus medius to the top of the pelvis is pulled down towards its attachment to the hip joint on one side that's going to create an upward force on the opposite side. So when you get enough of the force, your pelvis is maintained level and you have balance. So that's how you achieve balance. Balance, people like to talk about is they think it's neurological. The only aspect of neurological is the semicircular canals and the cerebellum telling you where you are in space. Mm -hmm. But your body has to react to that. If you're going off balance, Thinking about it isn't going to stop you from falling. You got to react. And it's muscles that do that. So just a sidebar, I'll tell you 99% of people being told they have balance issues, it's actually weakness issues. You know what? I 100% agree. Anytime that I've worked with someone who has balance issues, they're very fragile and weak and they're atrophied. They've got no strength. And a lot of times when I work with a strength athlete, guess what? Without training balance, they have balance. Right. 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 Exactly. They're strong people. Here's a, hey, you, you want to understand how, and this is what cracks me up. I'm going to show you how stupid this is to prove it. So someone's saying, no, no, it's neurological. Okay, just have them sit in a chair. If they can sit in a chair without their back supported and they're fully upright, how could you say they're having a neurological deficit? They're sustaining their awareness in space because they're not falling. Mm-hmm. Now, if they suddenly were like, I can't, you know, I can't sit up, I can't. That's different. Now they have a neurological deficit. But if someone supposedly has a balance issue in standing, just have them sit. If they could sit with their back upright, with not supported, they don't have a neurological deficit. What's the difference between sitting and standing? You need the muscles that support you <laughs> to create the force 
to support you. That's where the deficit lies. So that proves that. That's the it's instantaneous proof that there's nothing neurological. It's just muscular. Mm -hmm. So if we go to this concept of the glute meat straining, if it doesn't have enough force output, the body says, well, there's a hierarchy of force creation of muscles in the surrounding area. And it works by saying the muscle that's in the best position to create force is the one that's going to create the force. After that, the next one that's in the closest position, the next one. And if you kind of, again, if you're not, um, if you can't see this, I'm pointing to the fibers of the gluteus medius and you would see their vertical fibers. So remember, if you take that foot off the floor, the opposite foot off the floor, you're going to have to create a downward force on one side to create an upward force on the other side to support you without the foot supporting you. So you need a vertical force. Well, once the glute need fails, what's the next muscle that's next to it? The piriformis muscle. Mm -hmm. The problem with the piriformis muscle is its fibers aren't vertical. They're slightly diagonal. So they're not in a good position. So you've incited it to do a job it wasn't supposed to do. And then didn't give it the ability to do that job because its fibers aren't in a position to. So it strains. So the piriformis is not the cause of sciatica. It is a strained gluteus medius muscle. Oh, interesting. interesting. Now, for all those people who deal with people with sciatica, you want to know I'm right? Okay, just have them stand on one leg, stand on the other leg, see if it's harder on one side or the other. You're going to see it's harder. Right. This is this is over thousands of cases of me doing this. This is mm -hmm. like I tell everybody, I have theoretical, clinical and scientific evidence because everything I've done is empirically based. I've experienced this over 28 years. Mm -hmm. Then look at their pelvis. See if one side's higher than the other. You're going to find one side's higher than the other. Well, if you don't have balanced forces of the glute meat on both sides, you can't keep your pelvis level. Mm -hmm. Right. So there are make sure their symptom, make sure their symptom is exactly where sciatica should be. Not in the lower back, but in the gluteal region down the back of the leg beyond the knee. I've had people diagnosed with sciatica and their pain doesn't pass the knee. What doesn't pass the knee is a muscle. That's a strained hamstring. Mm -hmm. You got to be able to pass the knee and typically down to the foot for it to be true sciatica. So people talk about they want to strengthen the glute. Now, the very first thing, if you want to make sciatica shut off, so we know it's irritation of the nerve. Mm -hmm. Well, how can I make you not experience that nerve? Well, if I was to activate your quad, strengthen your quad to do knee extension, look, I have to straighten your knee to do the knee extension. Well, what has to happen to the hamstring to allow the knee to straighten? It has to be shut off. So there's this actual technical thing that happens called reciprocal inhibition. This really does happen. And what happens is there's a connection of the nerve, the quad, and there's a signal that can go to the hamstring and it says, well, I being the quad, I'm going to strengthen your knee. Mr. Hamstring, you are not allowed to contract. I'm going to shut the nerve off that makes you contract. And that way I know you can't. What's that nerve again that innovates the hamstring? Oh, that's right. The sciatic nerve. You okay. want to make, you want to shut sciatica down very quickly, instantly do knee extension. Mm -hmm. That's so if, the first step. So would there be any utility in if someone, um, so if you want to strengthen the glute and you want to do a similar concept, because uh, like a go-to in the personal training world would then be, okay, put them on the ground, do some variation of glute bridge. Right. And then you hear all the time people say, well, when I do glute bridges, I feel it in my hamstring. 
But if they push the foot into the ground, they tense the quad and then they can do the glute bridge and they can feel it in the glute. Is that reciprocal inhibition? No, no. Reciprocal inhibition is the ability of one muscle to contract and the inhibition prevents the other muscle from contracting to allow the muscle that's contracting to put the joint through range of motion. Mm -hmm. So you can't, if you were to want to straighten your knee and your hamstring is contracting, you can't straighten your knee. So you need to shut it off. Mm -hmm. That's how you create that. That's the, the essence of how, if I want to, if uh, I'm doing a job and I, I have to pick up a tray and I need to bend my elbows to hold that tray, I can't have my tricep contract because I won't be able to hold the tray. So mm -hmm. as the bicep contracts, it sends a signal, a, chem a, a, a um, hormonal chemical to the beginning of the nerve that innovates the tricep and impedes that from ever contracting. So it stops it from contracting to allow me to create the elbow flexion, the bending of the elbow needed to perform my task. That's reciprocal inhibition. Mm. In terms of, I, I think the confusion is because the pain is in the butt. The belief is that you need to address something in the butt. And I'm not saying that I don't do hip extension. I do. But one of the problems is which you mentioned, and this is kind of a, uh, I think an issue that would be very beneficial for people in the personal training area to understand there's a very, very big difference between doing closed chain mechanisms to address uh, muscles and open chain uh, means. So in you trying to do, let's say you mentioned that type of bridge concept where they're going to raise their butt. Mm. Do you think that you're requiring some sort of balance? Don't you need to be able to have your pelvis stabilized so that it can come straight up? So you have to have some sort of side forces being created. But what if the glute needs strain and it's causing the piriformis to impinge on the sciatic nerve and you do that? You're inciting an exercise that's asking the glute need to contract, the one that's already strained, mm -hmm. causing the sciatica. So in doing the bridge, if you ended up enhancing the sciatic symptom, it's not necessarily the up and down aspect of the bridge that's leading to the reinforcement of the symptom it's the stabilization required for you to perform that activity so you would suggest more unilateral single leg work from a standing perspective to get the vertical fibers rather than the slightly horizontal fibers supine that's right so if i i do ask people to do hip extension because along with sciatica you could also have a because of the pain and stuff you're going to try to end up leaning forward to offload yourself and I need to get you back. So I ask them to do hip extension, but it's a standing type of situation. Again, I have them holding on to a door in a frame, mm -hmm. or if I'm at a gym and you're using a cable machine, they're fully stabilized. Mm -hmm. Three points of contact, two hands, one leg, while they're doing the independent hip extension. And in terms of hip extension, one critical point is that you need to do hip extension, not back extension mm. so the hip extension has to stop the motion before the person begins to arch their back you really want to be focusing on that person and looking at that range of motion most of the motion is with the knee that's moving in front of the standing leg you only have 20 degrees of hip extension only 20 degrees so that knee can't get very far behind the standing leg 
before you're probably going to want to stop. If you see the person beginning to go back farther and arching the back, you're now going into a different muscle group. You're no longer doing hip extension. You're doing back extension. Okay. So 20 degrees is about the amount for hip extension. As a trainer, strength coach, you want to be hyper-focused on the lumbar spine and make sure it's not arching as they do the exercise. Absolutely critical. And no disrespect to any individual person, but I'll go into a gym and I see the majority of the hip extension being done in back extension. Mm-hmm. And if the person came to you and mentioned that they had lower back pain uh, uh, from some other reason, and you're trying to do hip extension, which is the right thing to do mm-hmm. to try to get the butt uh, a- activated to pull them from an arch to a more neutral posture, but you're activating them into a severe arch, you're inciting the low back to strain. Yeah, it's a very it's a very common common thing theme you see in the fitness industry now, and unfortunately, I would suggest that we see it more with females than males. And I think sometimes just because what is seen on the internet has a lot more hyperextension, yeah. and then you take a look at who's doing, it and you're like, well, they're kind of pretty. I want to look like that. <laughs> yes, yes, I <laughs> so, agree with that. I agree with that. Yeah, um, I just want to switch gears here in a split second yeah. because you are the pain guy. Everything you're talking about here, you work with pain, and in I'm down here in Canada, and a go-to when someone tweaks themselves, they hurt themselves. The first thing they tend to do is is grab some painkillers where they go see their doctor and their doctor gives them painkillers. Where do painkillers fit in the whole concept of treating pain? All right. So let's go back to the original. And, and again, I'm, I'm going to sound very different than anyone you're ever going to hear. I don't care what their specialty is in the medical field, because I want to make this really clear that the medical field has decided as a general global rule, that the key to diagnosing the cause of pain is, diag- is diagnostic tests, x-rays and MRIs. I think everyone's in agreement with that. That is a principle that was agreed to by an organization, by a group. The, the belief that the diagnostic test is correct wasn't, Hippocrates never talked about this, okay? Only the existing present medical establishment has decided. The YAS method is based on the principles of Hippocrates. You would, if you go back and look, you'll see he created the, the word symptom. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we want to understand that if you really want to know what to do about pain, you got to understand what pain is. Pain is an indication of a tissue in distress. You get pain as part of the evolutionary development of a feedback mechanism for the body. A particular tissue is not functioning. It's going to elicit pain in a specific manner. So that you create conscious words, oh my God, that thing isn't working. I'm going to go get an intervention and the intervention is going to resolve the distress of that tissue. And the tissue says, thank you, thank you, thank you for identifying me and Mm -hmm. fixing me. I no longer have to elicit pain. You could go back to your life. So that's how pain works, right? So what we need to do if we're going to get the right diagnosis is to understand that we have to interpret the symptoms to understand what tissue it is. And there are two things that must be part of a diagnosis. Number one, you have to identify a tissue. So um, I've had a lot of people and they might be diagnosed with something like, I don't know if you've ever heard the concept, CRPS, complex regional pain syndrome. Oh, fibromyalgia. Fibromyalgia is a real common Fibro. one. Uh, yeah. Maybe somebody's in a car accident, they're diagnosed with a, um, a whiplash. Okay. So what's missing in those diagnoses? There's no tissue identified. PRP, mm-hmm. complex regional pain syndrome, just means you got a lot of pain in a big area, and I don't know why. That's what syndrome means. Patellofebrile syndrome, another common knee diagnosis. Patella means you got pain in the kneecap area, and I don't know why. Mm-hmm. Right? You got to yes. have a tissue. The second part of this, and this is where the MRI and the X-ray fails, is that 
for the diagnosis to be correct, the symptoms the person's experiencing must match the symptoms that the tissue identified would create if it's in distress. Mm -hmm. Well, as I described to you, a meniscal tear can cause pain around the kneecap. So if you have pain around your kneecap and you're told it's caused by a, knee, a meniscal tear, it's a lie. I don't know why any else would think. It's a bold-faced lie. It can't happen. There's no possible way, mm -hmm. right? That's the way it works. So if we understand this, then I want people to recognize, should chronic pain really even exist? Well, if we know that the pain begins at the inception of the, the distress of the tissue, the tissue starts breaking down, it's going to elicit a symptom. Mm -hmm. And you went to say, I don't know, a diagnostic person like me, who identifies the proper tissue and it turns out it's muscle and I give you the proper intervention, when should pain always end? In the acute stage. So what is chronic pain? It's misdiagnosed acute pain. Mm. It's pain that's consistently continued because the original tissue has never been identified. You're treating the wrong tissue. And mm -hmm. so that tissue continues. So Let's go back to any of the ones I talked about, a tight quad, a strained levator scapula, um, uh, uh, imbalance between quads and hamstrings, uh, straining of the rotator cuff. Do any of those show up on diagnostic tests? The answer is no. Well, if you knew that, then doesn't that kind of ring true that maybe they're not going to be identified? And there's your chronic pain. So going forward, where do painkillers have a component? Well, if you're fortunate enough to find someone who can properly diagnose the cause of your pain during the period of time that you have properly identified and are treating the distress, I'm not the Marquis de Sade here. I'm not a masochist. I'm not telling people stay in pain until you fix the problem. Mm -hmm. The idea of any type of treatment to mask a symptom is designed to limit the symptom during the process of resolving the cause. So- for anybody, and, and the funny part was, I, I, I was in this field when opioids began, there were gigantic black letters on, um, on, on Vicodin, on um, Oxycontin, and on the bottle, it was in huge letters for acute use only. Mm, not when this first came out, they knew it was synthetic or uh, synthetic heroin. Everybody knew that who created it, it's straight out synthetic heroin. So they knew that the idea of the addictive nature of it was there. So they put in gigantic letters to protect them, protect themselves for acute use only. Well, I mean, that's lovely, except for the person who's not getting the diagnosis properly. And that pain just keeps going on and on. What would, what do you want them to do? Mm -hmm. And that's where the disuse or, or overuse or improper use began and continues on. It's like 30 years now. So my opinion is, you do whatever the hell you got to do to minimize your symptoms so you can function during the period of time that you've gotten the proper diagnosis and you are resolving distress of the tissue that is eliciting that symptom until the point at which you have resolved that cause, thereby ending the need of the tissue to elicit the symptom, you're done. You wouldn't even have to worry about it. And by the way, that's how you get people off painkillers. You can... identify the cause, resolve the cause. They don't need the dependence on the painkiller anymore. I hear a lot of emotion in your voice. <laughs> Why are you so passionate about this? Well, I, I do get very emotional. Um, there's some crazy reason that I was chosen to figure this out. Hundreds of thousands of people went through the exact same path I did. 
Lots of people became physical therapists and chiropractors and doctors. I don't know why I was the one person who finally just said, you know, where's your pain? Just kind of tell me what's going on and recognize that what the person was saying wasn't matching all the education I was given. And it, it just was stunning to me. And maybe because I was 30, maybe because I learned analytical thinking when I was a boy, I said, I can't in good conscience do this. And I need to go on my own path. And I was taught very young to have no fear. So I didn't really have any fear. In fact, I saw it as this great opportunity. And, and it just allowed me to find my path. And then because of the things I've done, maybe the PBS special and the books and all that other stuff, I became a last resort for a lot of people. And I have treated hundreds, hundreds of people who literally stood in front of me and said, I will put a bullet in my head tomorrow if you don't end my pain. I've done it all. You're my last resort. I'm telling you now, I cannot live another day like this. And I'm good. You must understand, I'm good with killing myself. I can't do this anymore. It is overwhelmingly sobering. You, you will come to attention. Your focus will become so severe. And God forbid you don't know something. You just say, excuse me. And you spend the next day, two, ten, whatever it takes to get whatever information you think you need to resolve that person's pain. Because it's on the line at this point. And that has basically fed me and driven me through these 28 years. And I, I'll be honest. I mean, I got mentally screwed up from it. It's, it's, I, I, I became consumed by this and it destroyed my personal life. I got divorced. I lost a decade with my daughter because I thought this is what I was being used for. And um, so thank God I found enlightenment and I separated myself. But the reality is that, this is this is bad. Things are very bad. I just a lady just said, I want you to understand how this is. It's not just kind of they're not telling you a little bit about the truth. I mean, there's bold faced lies. I just got sent something about a, a medical company, pharmaceutical company that wants to do a study on a drug that you inject into the spine for sciatica. We were just talking about this. And in there, they show a picture. And the picture shows the nerve roots coming out of the spine and becoming the sciatic nerve in the gluteal region. It is then followed by a statement that says that this drug can help you because it will address the structural variations, typically a herniated disc, because the sciatic nerve starts at the spine. That's a lie. It's a lie. The freaking picture. The picture in the, in the advertisement for the study shows what they're saying is a lie. And they could say that, and people who are having sciatica can succumb to that because what they said, because they're not in a position to interpret a nerve root and nerve picture. Of course, they're going to say, the guy says, hey, the sciatic nerve begins. We can take the disc off of it. What do you think they're going to believe? That's a lie. It will never work. Zero. No questions asked. I don't need no study to tell me that. And yet that just is put in front of me today. Am I so, um, should I just sit quietly and say, oh, that's so sad. I know. I know. I know it from a theoretical, clinical, and scientific presentation. I have it all. And I've got the, the, the patient load to prove it. You can't, you can't sit back. You can't sit back. And yeah, I, I, I mean, <laughs> I try to control myself the best I can, but 
it's almost every time I do one of these podcasts, some question comes up and it just, it just digs into my soul. And, and, you know, I just, you just don't want to find out that someone killed themselves because they, they just didn't have the right information and, and were manipulated. I, I just, you have to say it. You got to call the spade a spade. They were manipulated into getting treatment that was never going to work in the first place. So that, that's really what it's about for me. And it's a quest. I'm on a quest. Sounds like it's a very, a very scary situation is happening in today's medical field. And you have found um, a path that can help more people rather than hurt more people. And you just kind of put a handful of things together, figured it out. Do you think that it could be utilized in a school setting? Do you think that your methods could be a, a college, a university, a program for treating pain? So I, I want people to understand another concept that it's very disheartening, but it's a fact, is the fact that the medical system globally is a fee-for-service basis, okay? So you have pain in your back, you get a $350,000 spinal fusion, you have more pain, if not worse, and the guy who gets the, did the surgery gets paid, right? And that goes for any type of medical, I don't care if it's chiropractor, physical therapist, epidural neuroblock, it doesn't matter. They get paid no matter what. So without outcome, there's no reason this would ever change. In fact, they'd rather it be this way because as long as they can keep you thinking that the 50th time you get the treatment, it's going to work, you're going to come. And if you don't know that there's an alternative, okay? So I don't think that I can do it there. But I do believe I'm being used for a greater good. And I think that I only found out about podcasts eight weeks ago by a person that told me about this. And it's a sign to me that the tools by which I can create awareness are being handed to me to allow me to achieve my goal. And that at some point, massive numbers of people will see the YAS method as the path. And as a result of that, I am in the process of creating a certification program, which will allow me to certify people to do the Zoom sessions that I do and uh, allow us to have a greater opportunity to reach more people internationally because the YAS method is primarily performed through Zoom session, and that is our intent. Um, the, the intent is to create a body of people, um, and, and the good news is I'm telling you that more than 98% of the cases, because it's not, it's, not musc it's, not mus it's muscular, it's not structural. So those that are becoming certified, you don't need a medical license. I'd actually would prefer you know, personal trainers, athletic trainers, mm -hmm. massage therapists, people who have sensed maybe that the cause is muscular. They just don't know where to go with that, that belief and maybe don't have the full understanding. I've been contacted by a guy who's an osteopath in England. I had a guy in Texas who's a athletic trainer turned nurse. These are the people that uh, a lady who's a nutritionist, they're sensing something's going on with this pain issue and it seems to be muscular and they're out searching the, the, all these people, they're looking for the right education, but you can't find the right education in the medical system because the medical system is unwilling to acknowledge one of the most important things they would have to, which is to say, they just don't know what they don't know, which would then free you to then say, okay, so what else is there? And that's what I went through. And that's what I'm going to hopefully provide through this certification program. So that, that's the goal. I mean, within five years, we're talking about praying to have 50 or 60 people doing this, doing thousands of Zoom sessions uh, a year. 
Well, well, Dr. Yoss, I'll have to say that, um, you know, put me down on that list. Um, oh, I'm that would very, be great. I'd love it. I, w- I would love to be one of your students. I would love to learn some of your philosophies and apply it in a personal training realm because um, that is that is my scope. Yep. Um, so definitely uh, make sure you keep my email. Now, for someone who's listening to this right now, let's say they're sitting at home and they've tried everything, painkillers, they've got diagnosis, they're not getting better and they want to elicit your help. How could they get in contact with you? So the big thing to understand is that I am accessible. I have an email, drmitch at mitchellyas.com, D-R-M-I-T-C-H, drmitch at mitchellyas.com, M-I-T-C-H-L-L-Y-A-S-S.com. So I'll, I'll add it in the show notes, my friend. Okay, you'll have it. Okay, <laughs> you great. Don't need even to... better. Even better. <laughs> I don't know yeah. if that's going to be there or not, so I just will yeah. say, but if you're questioning where you are at this point, uh, you've been diagnosed, uh, I just had a lady today, osteoarthritis, I don't want surgery, contact me. Let me provide you an understanding, a background. See if what I'm saying makes more sense than what you've gotten. And maybe then you're ready to get a YAS method Zoom session, which you can get through my website, livewithoutpains.com. Again, livewithoutpains.com slash sessions. You'll find out what the Zoom sessions are about, how they work. And when you're ready, you can schedule a session for yourself for the day and time that works best for you. And the sessions are videotaped. The system is designed to empower you in the most financially sound way. You pay for the first session, it's videotaped. You're going to do your exercise three times a week for four weeks. You use that videotape going forward to make sure that each time you're doing your exercise, you have some level of supervision. Then you get a four-week follow-up. We make sure everything's going in the direction you want it to go. And then that session is videotaped. That becomes the new way of supervising you and making sure that things are going well. It is a very logically, analytically based path to once establishing the causes muscle, which it is in 98% of the cases, giving you the ability for you to get strong enough and to allow you to achieve a pain-free, fully functional life. Dr. Yoss, I really appreciate you coming on today. This was so uh, informational for myself and definitely from the listeners here. Project Fitness uh, Podcast, thanks you for your time. And um, I'm going to have all that stuff in the show notes there for anyone listening. Uh, The beauty of technology today is you're in Jacksonville, Florida. I'm here in Ontario, (laughs) Canada. We can have a conversation. So anyone who listens to this podcast can get in contact with you. So thank you so much for coming on today. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for the chance. I I really appreciate it. And You've been a great host, and I hope that your uh, listeners and audience um, feel energized and compelled to take another step in in their pain and and live the life they so justly deserve. So thank you. Someone is passionate about you, about helping people. The world needs more people like that. I appreciate it. Thank you. Never stop learning because life never stops teaching. If you've learned at least one thing from this podcast and your mission is to help other people, please share this podcast with them. And a reminder, we will be releasing one episode every Monday for the entire year. So make sure to hit subscribe so you get the updated information as soon as possible. Today is the first day of the rest of your life. And thank you so much for allowing me to be part of it.